Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, we are especially pleased as well to uh, uh, thank uh, some of our corporate sponsors, ExxonMobil, Jones Day, and Lockheed Martin Corporation, and to the Rosewood Crescent Hotel for being our strategic partner. Well, thank you. Merci beaucoup, uh, Paula. And uh, Jim, I want to thank you and uh, your whole executive uh, from the World Affairs Council on uh, inviting me here uh, this evening. And uh, I, uh, I consider it a great honor. I have been to Texas a number of times. And the, the first, uh, we, we were promoting the NASCO transportation route. In other words, a route from actually the port of Churchill, which is where the polar bears roam, uh, and where there is a port all the way uh, through to uh, uh, through I-35 right down to Mexico and trying to make that the dominant north-south uh, transportation route which of course with that comes lots of value-added jobs in either the knowledge economy or the, the traditional economy and uh, I work very much with the people of Texas in trying to do that. Uh, having said that, the first time I was here I believe uh, Governor Perry was the one that said, based on his in-depth research, uh, that Manitoba was the highest per capita consumer of Slurpees of any state or province in North America. Go figure, you know, we have this reputation of being a cold place. And so the next time I came back, I, found I was able to discover with my in-depth research that Texas was the largest per capita consumer of Crown Royal liquor made in Manitoba, Canada. So I presented the, the governor with a Texas Mickey. Now, of course, people haven't heard of the term Mickey in Texas, but everybody's heard that everything's bigger in Texas. A Texas Mickey in Canadian terms and in British terms is a huge bottle that was, uh, I had to bring in a diplomatic pouch. I didn't think I'd be ambassador a few years later, but I sent somebody in with a diplomatic pouch and presented it uh, to the governor. Uh, maybe if the Slurpee Summit tomorrow uh, doesn't work with the president, uh, we could suggest Crown Royal to really get some uh, creativity into the challenges uh, in Washington, notwithstanding the fact that I'm nonpartisan and postpartisan as an ambassador and everything that happens here is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, uh, we, uh, we haven't been matched in the WikiLeaks a lot. I guess that's, uh, maybe we'll get some coverage down the road, but uh, everybody all weekend was getting ready for what was going to come out and what it was going to say and what it would mean. And, uh, uh, and I guess it's the same thing as what happened with Canadian banks. Uh, over the years, Canadian banks were, were called boring, boring, boring. And the fact that we didn't have to bail out our banks is now sexy, sexy, sexy. So this is my theory on Canada uh, and our banking industry uh, as the ambassador. Now, we also have the privilege of, um, we just had the privilege of hosting the Olympics. 
And you probably think, and Vancouver Whistler, you probably think I'm mentioning that to shamelessly point out that we won the men's hockey gold medal. <laughs> I'm not pointing that out for a moment. I want to congratulate the United States for winning the most medals at the Vancouver Whistler Winter Olympics. And I'd also want to point out that it was important to note that the perimeter security for the whole Olympic Games was conducted out of Colorado Springs. It was conducted uh, in Colorado Springs with Canadian and American military and the perimeter security for, uh, for aerospace, the perimeter security for shipping, and the initial security of risk uh, beyond the borders and around the world was conducted by NORAD. And so when we talk about Canada-US relations, I like the, the little bit of the back and forth on who won what on the Olympic Games, but I also like to thank the United States for the great job they did on protecting uh, the spectators and the athletes so people could really make that a joyful event at the Olympics in Vancouver and Whistler. And it also points out the fact for 53 years, we have joined together in the traditional perimeter security of our two countries, and we are evolving every month to look at not only terrorist threats from outside of our two countries, but also to look at information sharing to deal with uh, a domestic radical threat that may present itself to either one of our countries in very, very important ways. And I guess as my, in my experience as ambassador for the last uh, just 12 months, I, I have found that the United States has a lot more intelligence, uh, intelligence resources than we do, but Canada has unique windows, and we try to use those unique windows around the world to supply information to minimize risk, uh, which is a crucial, I would suggest, for uh, efficient and effective trade between Canada and the United States in this North American continent. In that regard, uh, we are very lucky to have Ambassador Kirk, the former mayor of Dallas, who is the trade uh, cabinet secretary in, in Washington. Now, you should know that nobody I know speaks more about the Dallas Cowboys, uh, the, the stars, he was here when they won the Stanley Cup, he likes to tell the story, I, I didn't even know what hockey was, and here I was in the parade with, I guess Norm brought him to the parade, and he was really, really proud of it, and he, he, he is a really great, great supporter of three-way trade in the NAFTA uh, corridor, which of course is so strategically located in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we really do appreciate his job. Now, his job is not to, uh, to uh, trade in a way that's uh, uh, just agreeing with us. And uh, my job as ambassador, I consider to be the same in terms of its dimensions. Sometimes we try to do things like change the Buy America policy that came in in the Recovery Act and argue that Buy America is closed America and closed America is less jobs America. Uh, and we had some success trying to put some of the toothpaste back in that legislative uh, tube, if you will, uh, after it had, it had passed with the support of Ambassador Kirk. Similarly, there's challenges for Canada, and Ambassador Kirk has made it very clear, and I think correctly so, that some of the intellectual property rights, some of the copyright legislation in Canada has fallen a bit behind, and we should modernize those laws, and so my job as Ambassador is to try to make sure that we uh, 
introduced laws in Parliament. We have great support from our Prime Minister and our Cabinet. We have a law in Parliament now, and hopefully it can achieve what Ambassador Kirk and all of us believe is good, solid, modern uh, laws to deal with uh, intellectual property and property rights in our country. Uh, we have uh, interesting challenges on trade. Uh, I, I noticed there's 435 members of Congress uh, just outside the window of the Canadian Embassy. There's 100 senators. Uh, I would suggest that by the time I go up to the Hill in Washington uh, to argue about trade between Canada and the United States in terms of creating jobs and job security for companies that exist through trade, uh, by the time I get there, it's sometimes too late. They've already passed the law, passed the bill, developed a policy, and so what we're going to try to do more and more, and we're going to enlist your support, those of you who are buying or selling goods to Canada or investing here in the United States, is we're going to try to get people and companies and investors linked to each congressional district so we can talk about jobs, investment, uh, we can talk at the grassroots about economic uh, job security, job uh, growth uh, by talking uh, very, very directly uh, with people in their districts before they go to Washington and uh, get into a caucus and make a decision that may not be in the best interest of economic growth in their own district. So it's my personal view uh, after uh, 12 months on the job where well, we got to get into those districts and, and we got to use you uh, as part of the way to do that and that's what we're going to try to do into the future. Uh, we had a great meeting today uh, with Lougheed Martin and uh, we, uh, we think this is another great example of purchasing airplanes, uh, fighter uh, jets that will be appropriate again for our joint military defense efforts in NORAD. Canada participated in the uh, design of the tendering process or, the, or rather the purchase process and it participated in how we would proceed into the future to deal with uh, the purchase of those aircraft. And uh, we, uh, we also know that the greater participation at the front end means more jobs uh, in our communities in Canada uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in terms of the final product. And so today I was pleased to see the 13,000 people working in Dallas-Fort Worth, but I was also pleased to see a couple little Made in Canada labels inside different component parts of that plane and know that this is a good decision for Canada and the United States in terms of moving forward on um, our military uh, uh, capacity. It also makes sense to have a comparable uh, plane or the same plane uh, with the United States uh, dealing with uh, out of NORAD and it makes sense to maximize the benefits of uh, that purchase uh, for uh, innovative companies in Canada as well as here in the United States. Uh, it is certainly a challenge in today's uh, economy when people are talking more and more about the deficit. Uh, but for us, uh, the deficit in Canada, uh, the, uh, a lot of that deficit is tied to one-time only capital and that will expire uh, in a couple, uh, this year and we will be able to reduce the deficit in the next three years and, and this purchase of this aircraft is built into our expenditures and built into our four-year plan in terms of going forward. Uh, we also would note uh, for some of the uh, uh, negative comments on that aircraft going forward here in the United States 
that the UK just went through a vigorous exercise on uh, deficit reduction and made the decision to maintain that aircraft as part of their purchase decisions into the future, and we think that's very, very important. So uh, trade for us is extremely important for job security. Trade with Texas, we believe, will continue to be very important for you. Uh, Texas uh, ships more than twice as many goods to Canada as they do to China. It will continue to be, with the dollar going up, a lucrative market for tourists to come down here with the warm weather and, uh, and for uh, goods to be sold to Canada. And we believe two-way trade is good for both countries. Uh, and it's actually interesting, the latest Pew Research report on how Americans feel about trade with various countries rank Canada as the number one desired trading location out of the Pew Research of any country that US, the USA trades with. And we're really proud about that and proud that that will make our relationship even stronger and will give me another thing to say to Ron Kirk the next time we're talking about trade between Canada and the United States. Uh, finally, I want to talk about energy security and environmental sustainability. Uh, as a new ambassador, it was kind of interesting because when I was in Manitoba, I was selling hydroelectric power. And the Americans would say, why don't you sell water to Canada, uh, to the United States? We're you know, getting short of water. You've got 110,000 lakes up there. You know, you've got all these icebergs floating by your country. You've got this and that water. Why don't you sell us water? And I say we do. We sell it over and over and over again in the form of hydroelectric power. So that was my answer on sale of water. Uh, didn't always please everybody, but that's the, at least what we thought was a, a sensible way to go. But we're also, a, 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 besides being a big supplier of renewable energy through hydroelectric power to many jurisdictions in the United States, we're also the largest supplier of oil to the USA. Most people, if you did a survey, would say, uh, we get, you know, if you went down the streets, uh, Dallas or Fort Worth or, or uh, Toronto or, uh, or uh, New York, you'd have an answer, who, who provides the most oil to the United States? You'd have Saudi Arabia. And that's no longer the case. And it's interesting, Obama, uh, President Obama, when he was candidate Obama, campaigned on eliminating fossil fuels and oil from the Middle East by in 10 years. And he had a second promise, he would eliminate oil from the Middle East and Venezuela within 10 years. Now, if anybody's got holdings in Venezuela, I apologize, but I'm just the ambassador from Canada, so I don't know the intricacies of your holdings. But the bottom line is, this was a sensible promise when he made it, excuse me, two years ago, and we think it's a sensible promise uh, to fulfill uh, today in, in terms of North America. Is this water? <laughs> or is this? This is liquid Crown Royal. <laughs> the, uh, I can't figure, you know, this thing's gonna, you know, this water's gonna fall down. Okay, the, so I, the bottom, we, we think that it's really important for the United States to realize that. Uh, it's funny because in Washington, the debate on energy is really quite polarized. In Washington, D.C., it's really quite polarized. And I was involved. Uh, with the renewable energy when I was a premier and involved in traditional energy and energy efficiency, I find the debate in Washington to be really quite interestingly removed from the realities of, uh, of, uh, uh, of decision-making on utilities. I mean, there is a difference between the cost of coal 
electricity, gas, wind, solar, geothermal. And it's almost like a cost-neutral debate that sometimes goes on in, in uh, not by politicians, of course, because I cannot be critical of anybody in the political group in Washington, <laughs> but by the advocates that are repre represented in Washington. And so you'll have a debate on energy, and it'll be energy security here. We don't want to buy oil from the Middle East. You know, we've got to buy oil from Canada. Makes great sense. The governor of Montana said, you know, we don't send the National Guard of Montana to, uh, we don't send it to, to, to Fort McMurray. We don't send it to Edmonton. Those troops are risking their lives in the Middle East. And you get that argument over and over and over again about uh, the energy security. Against that, you hear uh, environmental concerns. And I can, and I, I consider myself pretty close to being in touch with the environment. But you'll hear people saying, and I heard a Hollywood actress that's gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous, at a panel in Copenhagen saying she, she weaned herself completely off of fossil fuels. And she was on this panel. And nobody challenged her because she was, in fact, gorgeous. But the, <laughs> but the reality is, that's a long kayak ride from Hollywood to Copenhagen. And uh, so that's the kind of debate you get in Washington over and over and over again. So I like to kayak, but I'm not gonna do it in the ocean with you know, the middle Atlantic, I'll tell you that right now. But um, she's a better person than I am, that's all I can say. So this is the kind of debate. In terms of the Alberta oil sands, you get this, what I call to be frozen facts. There's no question when the oil sands were first developed, the emissions were high. They were 80% higher than conventional oil. They're not anymore. They're 18% higher than conventional oil. And what people fail to mention, uh, it's gone down 40% per barrel in 10 years, 40%, and the emissions from Alberta oil is less than California thermal oil, which has been excluded from the light uh, crude standard in California. Not always understood. It's easy to write a bill that's got a really great standard, but if you exclude your own stuff back here, your own little secrets, uh, you know, it's a pretty easy bill uh, to talk about. It's, it's lower than Venezuela. It's lower than a lot of other uh, energy sources uh, from the Middle East when you calculate all the other uh, environmental costs. Uh, so that's one frozen fact. The other frozen fact I'm dealing with is that water is 10 barrels to one for oil. Now that was true when it was the alpha stage of the development, but it's down to two barrels in some of the new developments now in Canada, and we're going to continue to lower that, and uh, we have to lower it, uh, but uh, just to point out the relativity of that, Ethanol production, and I know this as a former premier uh, dealing with ethanol, is 3.7 to 1 uh, versus oil sands. Now the new projects are coming in at 2 to 1. So again, progress is being made. Nobody's perfect. Uh, it's being made. The issue of protecting the boreal forest, I want to say this to you. Uh, I put aside a lot of the boreal forest in Manitoba. The whole east side of the lake is the last undisturbed part of, uh, of the boreal forest. Um, you know, it bugs me when I go to a meeting with Europeans about the boreal forest because we set aside, nothing wrong with the Europeans, but on this one point about the forest, on the one point of my council general friends, 
and I like to mix it up with my European friends, we have set aside more than the size of France in terms of the boreal forest in Canada. Now, we're not perfect, but we've got a lot of boreal forest set aside. So these are the frozen facts I'm dealing with in Washington. The, the other interesting part of this is when you look at my own backyard, usually people in their own backyard don't want things. If you look at my, the own backyard in terms of energy, Montana supports the new proposed pipeline from the oil sands of Alberta to Houston. Montana supports it. North Dakota supports it. South Dakota supports it. Kansas supports it. Oklahoma supports it. Texas with the two senators supports it. So in my own backyard, we have tremendous support. In Washington, we have this huge debate going on between energy security and energy, uh, energy uh, sustainability. We are committed to lowering uh, emissions in Canada. We have signed up to the same agreement that President Obama has signed up to uh, on terms of reducing GHGs by 17 percent by 2020. We're going to do it slightly differently than the United States and we're going to do it the same way as the United States. We have the same tailpipe emission standards that we've negotiated between our two countries, same economy, same ecology, same auto industry, same tailpipe emission standards. In terms of other issues, United States and Canada will go in different directions. Uh, about 20% of our emissions come from coal in Canada. Coal in the United States, by the way, represents 60 times more emissions than oil sands do in Canada. Having said that, we can't meet our target of a 17% reduction and still produce more oil from the oil sands, uh, even if we were able to continue to reduce successfully the, uh, uh, the emissions, we can't do that and meet our target without reducing uh, emissions from other sources. So we are going to, with new regulations in Canada, probably close all but two coal plants in our country to reduce uh, the emissions to meet our target. In other words, we'll get to the same place in some harmonized ways and we'll get to the same place in disharmonized ways in, in terms of what we have to do and how we have to do it. So that is why we believe that energy security is extremely important for uh, Canada and the United States. And uh, really what I'm working on as a new ambassador is quite simple. We need good trade for job security. We need good policies of uh, perimeter security for international security. And we need good policies on energy from Canada for energy security. I'm all about security and security takes place uh, with this world affairs meeting uh, by working together with Canada and the United States. Thank you very, very much for your time here today. And I'll take any questions. We have a, a number of students who arrived okay. um, just shortly after you began your, your remarks, and they're from Brighter Horizons Academy, and you touched on this, but I wonder if you could go a little bit farther. What did Canada benefit from NAFTA? And I might add, is there any part of the NAFTA agreement now that you would uh, restructure? Well, I, I think the benefit for the United States was uh, energy uh, access at uh, the same price uh, for that Canada was providing to its own citizens to the U.S. Uh, business, business and consumer. Uh, the advantage for Canada was less uh, nitpicking arguments every day about this product or that product based on what would happen uh, in, uh, in the Congress or the Senate. So the advantage was we had less disputes and more uh, 
supply chains having uh, kind of a seamless approach. It's interesting, the provinces didn't sign on to NAFTA, and I actually didn't know that for a while until I found out under the U.S. Recovery Act. And uh, so we've now, with Ambassador Kirk, agreed to getting uh, access for Canadian, uh, well, we, we've asked for access to the Recovery Act section uh, for Canadian companies in the U.S. states uh, as part of the World Trade Organization procurement policy. Uh, that is a short-term measure. Uh, I actually think it makes more sense to have a longer-term measure under the World Trade Organization or NAFTA, whatever mechanism we should use to provide full access for American businesses into provincial procurement. And we've got agreement from all the uh, 13 provinces and full access for Canadian provinces into state procurement. Why is it good for the United States? And your Recovery Act will be soon uh, expiring, but why it's good for the United States in terms of predictability of access to markets is Canadian provinces run and manage the utilities in our, in our country and we also run a $120 billion healthcare system, and we would prefer the patients get the best product based on merit in our own jurisdiction for healthcare. And I think American business would want the best access to that uh, consumer uh, through uh, a, a more uh, defined system for states and provinces. So that's what I would change. I guess it was left behind because people in Canada thought it would be a problem, but to me, uh, Canadian provinces all agreed to try to renegotiate the Buy American provision, so there's a political will to move on, and uh, I think Canadians are becoming more and more free traders and less and less protectionist as we uh, get more and more confident. Confidence breeds trade. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for a couple of events in my lifetime that you were most neighborly about. Back in the 19, late 1970s, you rescued four of our people from uh, Iran and shepherded them home secretly, and we very much appreciated that. And then uh, about 90 days after 911, uh, when New York appealed for us to come visit because the shows are cheap and the hotel room rates are down, and come on and spend some money, about 4,000 Canadians uh, I ran into in New York spending money there. Question I have is what issues uh, are foremost in your mind as difficulties with us as your next door neighbor? Well, back on Iran, it was interesting because <laughs> never miss an opportunity to talk about something really positive. That's what I, <laughs> shamelessly I might add. Uh, I had Ken Taylor at the embassy uh, just recently and we had the journalists uh, that were there in Tehran and the six hostages, three of the six hostages that were there, including some that were, got out of the uh, American embassy that were working for the CIA and would have been very serious risk. And I thought what was most interesting in talking with everyone and listening to them 30 years later was the fact that the media knew about the story, all the media knew about the story before the hostages got out of the country. And all the media ethically decided not to break the story. I'm not sure with the web and everything else today uh, that could happen. Not, I'm not thinking about the present situation, but I, it's, it's, um, it, there is a tremendous uh, lesson for 
the media putting the safety of people ahead of, and Ken Taylor, who was our ambassador, putting the safety of people ahead of uh, breaking a story. And I thought that was something that I think isn't talked about a lot about what's the role of the media in the safety of the citizens that they report to. Uh, so that's just my own takeaway. I know it's not in the media, <laughs> that's sorry, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I, our biggest challenge is to make sure uh, that we get the security right and we get the perception of the security right. Just recently, there was a candidate in Nevada running for Senate that said on, on being questioned in a town hall meeting about uh, threats to U.S., started off with it's these people and it's those people and oh by the way when we got questioned on that the two groups so oh it's the terrorists came through Canada and not you know the terrorists came from Canada and of course that's not true and here we have 1.3 million Canadians going to Nevada every year why I don't know uh, just kidding I'd rather go to Dallas but the uh, biasly he says that and I had a great weekend by the way a long weekend I loved it I celebrated Thanksgiving like a U.S. citizen this weekend. Uh, so um, I, I think that's getting the security right and getting the perception that we get the security right. It's such a, uh, when you're already to be perceived to be the weakest link because people said you were in 9-11, uh, it's really, you know, that's already a challenge to get the facts straight. Not one person came through Canada. Not one person got a visa from Canada. Not one person was trained to fly, not land and take off in Canada. So it makes us damn mad to hear that we're, you know, that I, it makes us mad. As a diplomat, I can't say it damn. So it, you know, it can't, you know, it does make us mad to hear that. Uh, so we got to keep working on it. There's a lot of, every day we work with the United States that doesn't hit the radar screen like the case in Oregon where we're collectively sharing information uh, to deal uh, with potential risks, which are much different than even five years ago. The radicalized domestic population is something that was really, really important. And again, the person like Ken Taylor, who had a unique window on Iran and had a unique opportunity uh, to show his bravery, is also what's still going on in the world. Some people will talk to the United States, and the United States will get a lot of information because they got a lot of sources. But some people will talk to somebody like a Canadian because we're you know, we have a unique uh, set of years, I guess, in some, in, in some places. So that's, and the key is to share it to save, to keep people safe. That's our challenge. That's what, that's what keeps people awake at night. I'm sure the president, I'm sure the prime minister, I'm sure the Homeland Security Secretary. It's, uh, you keep getting it better and better and better, but you cannot ever um, get uh, complacent. So that's the biggest issue. It's a long answer to a short question. You handled magnificently the threat to your parliament some years ago. And I wonder if you've had anything serious like that happen since that time, since you really handled it so well. Well, we've got threats. Uh, the bottom line is, you know, if you're in Afghanistan or an ally of the United States, I would suggest the United States citizen is at risk in certain situations, and allies of the United States are probably not as much at risk, but are at risk. 
So part of what we have to do in Canada, you, this is the job again of ambassador to uh, Canada or from United, to United States from Canada, is to also explain to Canadian domestic audiences that it's not a human right to cross a border. I mean, it's kind of nostalgic to believe, you know, you just can cross the border, play football, play baseball, play hockey, you know, just nothing, nothing happened, you know, it's back and forth. It's not a human right to cross the border. You're asking to go to somebody else's living room, if you will. And so that's a, a shift we've got to make. But yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's, you know, I think Vic Taves, the Minister of Safety uh, from Manitoba said, uh, public safety, who works with Janet and the Palatano, they were both prosecutors before, one in Manitoba, one in Arizona. Uh, they have both, uh, you know, they both at meetings, they're dealing with security risks all the time, whether it's parliament or something else. And you, you know that in your own businesses because you hear it. The citizens only hear about something as dramatic as, uh, you know, the Times Square situation or the Detroit bomber a year ago or uh, the situation in Oregon. But there's, there's lots of other situations and our, our collective security people are doing a great job. Thanks, Jim. Um, esoteric topic. I, first of all, I appreciate your very strong commitment to free trade, but I wanted to ask you about potash. Yes. And uh, the Canadian Foreign Investment Act, and just get your take on that. And um, so what is Canada's policy on foreign direct investment? Our policy is we believe in foreign investment, and 99.99% of the time uh, decisions are approved for foreign investment. Uh, I think there's been uh, decisions in the United States, uh, such as the ports uh, that were originally purchased and then uh, not allowed to go through. And in Canada, the potash situation is uh, uh, basically it was considered uh, that by the government reviewing the, with the criteria that uh, it would not be in the Canadian public interest. But that is a very rare decision. And I think what the question from businesses, what are the criteria for that? And the federal government has said they want to review the criteria so it's clear to investors before they begin the process, uh, try to provide a little greater clarity. But as I say, 99, 999 times out of 1,000, uh, an investment decision is going to be made, uh, approved. So it's not a thousand percent. It's nine hundred ninety-nine percent. But that's the best answer I can give you without getting fired. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I want to ask a question about oil sands. You're, you talked a, a bit about that and. There are obviously a number of American companies that are invested and investing in the oil sands. Some of those companies are very large and are used to dealing with potential changes in tax structures and such. Um, some of those companies are not as large, thinking of a uh, company that I'm associated with. And I'm just wondering how you feel or what your sense is of the tax structure on the oil sands area over the next 10 years? Do you think there was a, there was a great deal of discussion that uh, environmental concerns would prevent the development going forward, but certainly the tax 
structure could change significantly to make some investments that today look profitable become much less so. Thank you. Well, I think the experience is when you uh, increase a tax in one province, say it's, or one country, investment goes somewhere else for two reasons. One is more costly to, to, uh, to, more costly to invest, and secondly, it becomes more unpredictable. And uh, I think that uh, my, my belief is uh, that sometimes these things have happened in the past, but I think that uh, uh, the government of Canada for sure is reducing corporate taxes. Uh, they're proceeding with a corporate tax reduction again on January 1st, which is built into the, uh, the fiscal framework. Uh, so we will have a corporate tax rate, I think, that's lower than the United States. I think on the R&D side, we have a corporate tax structure that's gone from higher to lower than the United States. And I think on the provincial side, uh, provinces have the reality of competing with other provinces. And today, a province doesn't have oil tomorrow, they find a lot of it. So I think they will want to keep it affordable and predictable. That would be my prediction for the next 10 years. And I'll be back here to watch the Dallas Cowboys <laughs> 10 years from now and to see if that prediction comes through. Nowadays, when we talk about energy, oil, or uh, global warming, um, we usually mention about China. And uh, the conflict between U.S. and China is uh, the major issue for, uh, of the contention of the uh, global warming issue and uh, also energy issue. Uh, what is uh, Canada's approach to this issue, and uh, what, uh, what role uh, does Canada play for um, international cooperation on this issue to advance? Well, the, one of the difficulties for Canada with Kyoto was that China had not signed on or participated in or even uh, had an intensity target reduction uh, in the Kyoto Accord, uh, along with other emitters that were not part of that agreement. And uh, so Copenhagen, to us, is a much better and more doable uh, target and uh, process. Uh, so we signed on to uh, Copenhagen and we signed on to the same 17% target as the United States because it's our largest trading partner and to have the same ecological target uh, is useful for us in terms of the same economic uh, playing field between Canadian and U.S. companies and, and consumers. Uh, on China, it's interesting how the Washington Post classified, you know, they had the targets at the end of January 31st, everybody signed on to these targets, and they had 17% from Canada and 17% for this country and 20% from another country. And China had a 40% intensity target reduction, and they, saw, they, 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 they displayed it as the same thing as a net reduction. So part of what we've got to do is educate the public that intensity targets are different than net reduction targets in terms of, uh, in, in terms of China and other countries. Uh, China's tough to deal with. Uh, if it wasn't for the American president last year on the Friday night going into the room in Copenhagen, uh, it wouldn't, they wouldn't, there wouldn't have been at least the semblance of an agreement uh, in that country. And then we, those, some countries would be left with Kyoto, which wasn't good for Canada. Uh, so Copenhagen was good for us uh, because it's much more doable. I think China is worried itself about what's going on with the Yangtze what's going on with the Yellow River, what's going to happen to the shoreline. I think they're also wanting to leapfrog other countries in terms of clean energy 
uh, at technology and innovation and be able to sell it uh, to the world. Uh, but it's going to be a tough process in the short term on verification uh, with China. And it's going to be a tough time on uh, some of the issues of dealing with uh, a, a more sustainable target uh, in a more comparable trading environment between uh, North America and China. Uh, but I do think they have reasons to want to change, uh, but they'll perhaps do it uh, not as quickly as we would like in terms of what they will sign on to. The other interesting thing that Canada, United States, and, and Mexico are working on, uh, we've done some work, and people forget the, the Montreal Protocol to reduce substances that produce the ozone-depleting materials uh, started out with 16 countries. Uh, and and now we have 165 countries that are part of the ozone uh, depleting uh, substance uh, agreement, treaty. And that agreement was signed in Canada in 1987. Uh, that, is actually, that agreement has actually lowered GHGs more than the Kyoto Protocol. And so is there things we can do in that protocol agreement that has 165 countries to deal with the black carbon that's going on the ice uh, in the Arctic or, and, and melting it much faster? Or the things we can do to add on to that agreement that's actually been very successful. Uh, you know, no, nobody in the media will talk about success, but this is a really good example of something that started with Canada, the United States, and 15, uh, 14 other countries has had an impact on stopping the depletion uh, uh, or stopping the uh, size of the ozone layer uh, or the hole in the ozone layer going larger it's also had the added benefit of having uh, a reduction in GHGs, uh, which I think are, is good for the uh, overall planet. Now, most people think Canadians should not be opposed to any policy dealing with global warming. You go to Canada in January and you would say, why are they worried about global warming? Why don't they want it to warm up? And that's a good question. Yeah. So if you're going to make a speech on global warming in January, you're going to be a one-term politician. <laughs> But the key, of course, is that it will increase the sea levels uh, on all, all three oceans that surround Canada and also deplete uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the huge numbers of lakes we have in our country. The projection's 50 years out. That's why we care. We don't mind it really warming up a touch in January, but we do worry about what it will do for lakes, and that's why we're committed to uh, taking action. That's a long answer to, again, a short question. We have, we have one more question. Last question, sir. And if you'll wait for the microphone. Two environmentally related questions. Uh, first of all, how effective has the carbon tax in British Columbia been in reducing emissions? Secondly, Canada has said that they would like to implement a uh, cap and trade system. Can Canada realistically do this unless the, unless the United States does also? No, in my view. Uh, both candidate McCain and candidate Obama rejected a carbon tax in the election campaign two years ago, and both campaigned on a cap and trade system. Uh, the cap uh, and trade, trade I think has been a diminished commodity in public opinion uh, particularly in the United States with what happened in the markets and everything else. So it's kind of associated uh, a little bit with that. Uh, I think that uh, what Canada will do 
is regulate industries that are creating a lot of, uh, of the emissions to get to the target. Number one, uh, we've regulated the, uh, uh, the car industry and we're working on heavy vehicles and we're working on ocean vehicles and we're doing that completely with uh, the administration, the EPA in the United States. We want the same regulations. So that now cars and trucks and vehicles represents 27% of the emissions in Canada. And getting that energy efficiency is, uh, is very important and we can get reductions there uh, with the new emission standards, uh, which, which are actually stronger in some ways because they deal with air conditioning and other things on cars than the original uh, California tailpipe emission standards. That's why I get agreement from uh, a lot of jurisdictions on that. On uh, the next 17% of our emissions are coal. And uh, we will close probably all but four coal, or two coal plants in Canada. Uh, to try to reduce emissions. That has the added benefit of clean air and indirectly clean water, which has a higher buy-in than just climate change and GHGs. Uh, it's also the time to do it when plants are old, because the worst thing you can do is let plants go on and build a refurbish, and then tell them two years later after refurbishing, oh, by the way, we changed our mind on coal. And in the biggest province in Canada, Ontario, they pledged to eliminate their major four major coal plants by 2014. So the federal government's policy makes sense with the, uh, what's going on in some of the provinces. Uh, but we will have to replace that coal. Uh, we, we're lucky to have hydroelectric power, but it will require some gas, some energy efficiency, some uh, uh, provision of wind, maybe a little solar. The cost of solar is so high right now. <clears throat> so you know, you don't also don't want to be defeated in policies because the, the utility prices go up so much that uh, it's a, the public it won't stomach what you're trying to do. So we'll do it by regulation, and I think that's what the United States will do. Uh, the area that's the toughest for us is agriculture, uh, and uh, obviously some of the uh, it's you know the we ha we have to work with our agricultural producers, but that's the toughest challenge I think for both Canada and the United States on GHGs uh, in our in our uh, collective ecosystem. Thank you, sir. <coughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.